This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Andrew, are you into grilling? I mean, I like to eat things that have been grilled. But are you into, like, patriotically setting something on fire and then eating it later? <laughs> sure. Because we're coming up on Memorial Day. It's a week away. Mm-hmm. And that's a big grill holiday. Get your grills ready. Fire up your, your grills. Fire up your grills. Put your corn cobs in bowls to soak the corn so you don't actually singe, like burn it later like you want it to be tasty. Get okay, your, boys and grills. Get your dry ribs. Boys and grills? Yeah. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. And I can't... I had to stop when you said boys and grills. I'm sorry. <laughs> it just caught me off guard. I know. Well, you thought that we were doing our other podcast, The Briquette bros that's about grilling <laughs> we we wanted to just call it the briquettes or the briquettes from rockefeller plaza mm-hmm. but we got a couple letters telling us to stop it yeah and so we didn't use that name but yeah i'm excited i've been grilling a little bit this uh this year already and i'm excited to get to more tasty delights i live in a fifth floor apartment with no outdoor space so i couldn't grill if i wanted to could you sneak a grill to the roof i could but i wouldn't want to get caught up there with it (laughs) you can't you can't run from the cops when you're on the roof like it's it's just hard believe me who's that guy parkouring away while he's carrying a grill oh it's andrew of course who else would do that andrew we're talking about urban living, grilling in the urban lifestyle, but I think this week's book, <laughs> grilling, grilling in the Urban Lifestyle, is my uh-huh. new podcast. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, we are talking about a book this week that has nothing to do with that, and we're talking about a different book this week than we anticipated. What What are we doing here? Yeah, so we, I am still reading 1Q84 by Haruki Murakami, but as I anticipated last week, it's pretty long, and too long some would say so it's not done yet so what i did was i turned around and i read a novella or a short story depending the classification depends on who you ask or what your own personal opinions about this are but um i read the call of the wild by jack london who i don't think we've done for the show before but he's a very common fixture in the dead white man canon which means that lots of people are exposed to him in high school and maybe even in college some yes that's correct Have you read any Jack London, Craig, ever? I have not. Uh, every time you've said his name, I've had to rethink real hard about like what era he's from. Um, he's late 1800s, early 1900s, an American writer from uh, California. He was born in San Francisco. And um, yeah, he, he wrote uh, To Build a Fire. He wrote White Fang. Oh yeah, two of the White bigger Fang. Ones. Yeah, White Fang, which, okay. I, which I had read before, so I didn't read it that time. Most of what I remember is like the vivid descriptions of the wolf eating little 
baby birds and like feeling their blood in his mouth or whatever. It was it was, was kind of gross. And was that about a wolf? That yes. book? It wasn't yeah. about a a guy named White Fang. It was about either a wolf or a very wolfish dog. I do not remember. <laughs> okay. What's interesting that I found about Jack London is that because he's from that turn of the century time period in San Francisco, some of what we know about his uh, like origin story, because that's the word I'm going to use this week. Mm-hmm. He's it, a superhero. He is. Well, we don't know actually, because some records of his family were lost in the 1906 earthquake. So he we, could be from Krypton. He could be. Yeah, he could have derived his powers from our son. Or record keeping just wasn't that good, a hundred and whatever <laughs> years ago. Either it's one of those two. One of those two. Uh, his mom, Flora Wellman. Uh, was with a man named William Cheney, and we are maybe this was his son. We don't know. Um, the rec- as I said, they threw all of their records into the sun. Um, and is that, we, <laughs> is that where we came down <laughs> on that? One? That's what we decided. Weren't okay. you listening? Yeah. Uh, she actually was told by Cheney to uh abort the pregnancy she decided not to she shot herself didn't severely injure herself but did uh give like temporary custody and or at least like care of the of the child jack london over to a woman virginia prentice who was a former slave um and i say all this because as jack london's growing up like he's kind of a wayward boy like he doesn't he so his mom marries a man named John London, which is where he gets the name from. They're living mm-hmm. in the San Francisco Bay. But then uh call it Frisco, please. Okay. He's living down in Frisco Bay, excuse mm-hmm. me. And that's what all the natives prefer to have it called. <laughs> uh and in the eighteen late eighteen eighties, he had dropped out of high school and was like spent some time on a schooner. He got arrested for vagrancy in Buffalo, New York. Like, he was all over the place. He was briefly, I think my favorite of his many odd jobs during this period, in between leaving high school and then coming back and finishing high school, was when he was an oyster pirate. What was his What was his oyster pirate name? I don't know that he had an oyster pirate name. I just think that oyster pirate is a funny <laughs> occupation. What? And it is exactly what it sounds like. You're just poaching oysters, but they call them specifically oyster pirates. Okay. Okay. Uh, he did eventually go back to high school, as we said, um, and his mom took her own life. He wrote to Cheney to see if Cheney would like be his long-lost dad, and Cheney was like, no, I'm impotent. You're not my son you're the worst go away like everyone should feel more bad for me than they feel for you (laughs) uh and so berkeley uh not berkeley excuse me london went to uc berkeley for about a year right and then quit and went off and got uh, swept up in the yukon or klondike gold rush right yeah, yeah the klondike gold rush which helped uh is also i think a yukon gold rush because it, it gave birth to the yukon territory and that was in uh, the late 1890s, 1896. It was about three years long. 
and it ended up uh, like a hundred thousand people ended up going up to this uh, region of Western Canada slash Alaska. Yeah, and I was doing some reading about the the towns that sprung up and then like immediately collapsed as soon as the gold rush was over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, what are the, what are they called? Uh, the man. big one was Dawson City, right? Dawson City is is one of the big ones, and then there's a, a Forty Mile is another one, and um, Dawson City. Still has, I think, a little over a thousand people in it. There were like forty thousand when the gold rush was at its peak, but then when it was over, it w- it went down to eight thousand, mm-hmm. and it kept dropping as like highways were built and and different stuff kept happening. But Forty Mile is uh, like a historical site at this point. It's not okay. nobody nobody's actually living there anymore. There, so all these people would head up north from Seattle and San Francisco and head west. From- west from other parts of canada and they were required to have like a certain number of provisions so that they wouldn't die on the trail but there's still stories of people who you know boiled their boots so that they could drink boot broth uh-huh which is tasty, pretty great mm-hmm. uh there's also a guy named soapy smith who set up in skagway alaska where the white pass trail started he had he was like running a grift operation mm-hmm. where he bought a bunch of telephone poles and telegraph wire, but it wasn't hooked up to anything. So when people came through, he would charge them to send letters back to his family. Okay, which I think is a pretty sweet deal. Yeah, <laughs> it's good a job. pretty, pretty good, pretty good grift. You could yeah, you can go up there and you can try and dig for gold, but that seems hard. So really what you should do is you should dig for gold in other people's pockets because there's a bunch of suckers up there Uh uh-huh and it's easier to get money out of suckers than it is out of the ground guess who ran a restaurant and and hotel in british columbia during this time andrew guy fieri's great grandfather donald trump's grandfather frederick trump i was really close a german like entrepreneur and later draft dodger who made his way out to the boom towns that seems like a common trait and that's part of where he built his fortune okay just want to drop that one in there great i'm glad we let him do that uh and to your point about kind of it being very difficult to find gold, which it very much was and so take just take other people's gold or Mm -hmm. livelihood uh, a lot of people ended up just doing that thing where you buy and sell claims instead of ever digging, right? Which is awesome, mm-hmm. great. Uh, you're just buying other people's work and selling it later, and then it also displaced uh, a couple native populations, including the Han people, um, who suffered a lot during that area. You know, there's a couple Western tribes, and I think two native people were actually responsible for finding the first like gold vein along a creek anyway sure um other things about jack london he was a correspondent during the russo-japanese war which is not a thing i knew that there were like war journalist correspondents during sure Uh, and that kind of offset some critiques of his about being pretty racist like he wrote an an essay that was like a sort of science fiction-y look into the future about a China that gets so big it just starts invading everyone. Okay. And (laughs) generally scholarship has looked a little unkindly on this essay as Mm -hmm. being pretty xenophobic. Um, But he's actually been well-received among Japanese audiences and a couple other populations who he was depicting in his work um, during his time. He was arrested multiple times in Japan. Uh, and had to be saved by Teddy Roosevelt at one point. 
That's pretty cool. If you're going to be saved by somebody. (laughs) Just pretty good. Um, He also fought off a few accusations of plagiarism, I think. Oh, Um, yeah. Mostly, I think those are either really ambiguous or unsubstantiated. Um, There's one um, in his novel, The Iron Heel, which I think is about um, unions and the working class and socialism and stuff. Those were those that that was the way he leaned politically Mm -hmm. was uh, socialism. And he was big into unions and and the rights of the middle class and all that good stuff that was happening at around that time. Yeah, he had Um, he had done a march against unemployment and and protesters in 1904 also in Coxey's army. But yeah, there's a there's a chapter in that that is claimed to be uh, so I'm reading from Wikipedia here nearly identical to an ironic essay that Frank Harris published in 1901, um, and London said to that that he had, he had clipped a reprint of the article which had appeared in an American newspaper and believed it to be a genuine speech delivered by the Bishop of London. Huh. Um, because the you know the chapter the essay that frank harris wrote was called the bishop of london and public morality and apparently london either didn't get that it was not (laughs) a real thing or was just using that to get out of being in trouble either way like i think it's a pretty pretty canny move yeah and his career was built on kind of a an uptick in in available magazines and sources for short fiction writing and it sounds like a lot of the counts of plagiarism were I based my short story off this newspaper article, and so did you. Yeah, right. Or who's in trouble? No one. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> Andrew, did you also know that people are still prospecting for gold? I did know that when I was reading about uh, Dawson City a little bit. There are some, now that gold is so expensive, there are some small-scale mining operations going on up there that yeah. apparently pull go... in enough to, to be worth it. You could go to goldprospectors.org and you can join like a local chapter of gold prospectors. Which I Do think they is... give you like ratty burlap pants and like a, a old straw hat and some old flannel to wear like the you know, the prospectors uniform? Well, according to goldmaps.com, all you need to pan for gold is a shovel, an old dishpan or a gold pan, a magnifying glass, a pair of tweezers and a small plastic vial in which to put your gold. That's all you need. <laughs> Why are people gold prospecting and gold panning, Andrew? Yeah, I'm, why? I'm quoting directly from this website. Okay, good. Is it because it is something the entire family can enjoy? Is it the quest? Is it to get outdoors? Is it the thrill of finding something that no one has seen before? Is it all of the above? It's all of the above, isn't it? Uh, Yes, but for most people, the reason is it's just plain fun and something I have always wanted to do. Okay, something you personally have always wanted to do? No, that was in quotes. That was also from the website? That was also from the website. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it sounds so easy and fun. Like, I don't know why anybody works re- regular <laughs> jobs. I don't know why we're not all just prospecting all the time. Well, and I think every, like, fleck of gold is worth $20 million. So, like, it's probably really that lucrative. That sounds... I'm not going to check it because we don't have time, but that sounds about right. That's what I read um, on yeah, Wikipedia. What, what else about London? I mean, he was he was... He's just he's one of the first fiction writers to uh, to become notable and then live entirely based on the money that he's pulling in with his fiction, which was not a thing that people yeah he did for a long time. I think that came up when we talked about Moby Dick and a few other writers like Poe maybe and a few mm -hmm. others from this era. He used it to set up something called Beauty Ranch, which he like bought a big ranch in California and apparently was not really good at running it. 
But was it beautiful at least? Uh sure. Okay. It didn't really make a lot of money. Every he was quoted as saying like every article and story he published was to add x number of acres to his ranch. Okay. Which I think is pretty sweet. He had is a house ranch still around, Do you know. Uh, it's in the National Park System right now. Okay. Yeah. Um and he's buried near the site where Wolf House was built. Andrew, he had part of his estate was called Wolf House. Cool. But then it burned down. Oh. Wolf House is no more. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> um, he was, I found out about this weird argument in, you know, circa the early 1900s about nature fakers. And well, it's so, basically this what? debate, nature fakers. It's this debate apparently between like nature writers and scientists and on the one side are people who are writing books about anthropomorphized dogs and attributing sort of human <laughs> skills and emotions to them. And on the other side are people who are like, that's not how animals work. Oh, okay. Interesting. So people have been well actually other people for a very long time. Well, and we talked about this with Black Beauty a couple of weeks ago. Is like the story, the fictional story has a social impact. Mm-hmm. Right. Black Beauty certainly did. And it was written mm-hmm. to have a social impact. Um, I'll be interested to find out if Call of the Wild is similar. But even even if it was fudging stuff, it wasn't after, like, this is a textbook. It was after learn more about this, care more about this. I think mm-hmm. more specifically care more about this because then you can kind of fudge the facts so that they're more shocking. Yeah, I don't I don't know that educating is a huge goal of London's in this particular mm-hmm. book. Certainly he's not trying to raise awareness about when people are mean to dogs. Okay. Um, the, if, if he's saying anything, it's that you should let animals be wild because they seem to like it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, are we, are, are we done with London? Do we have anything else? No, I think we're good. Okay. Interesting dude. Uh, only lived to be 40. It's debated whether his de- death was a suicide or not because he was using morphine, I think. Yeah, for some pain um, in his hip and other and other places. Yep. Yeah, so. Cool. Jack London. Yeah, he's a guy. Yeah. Look him up. Don't take our word for it. Okay, Call of the Wild, a short adventure novel by Jack London. You can find it on Amazon in the Kindle store for free, I think. Um, published in so 1903 yeah. yeah published in 1903 and a pretty breezy read so I read Black Beauty last and I think it's helpful to talk about this book in the context of that book okay. a little bit okay so this that book was from like a first person perspective and you were like in the horse's head literally inside of its skull looking out right. yeah, hearing right. it speak mm-hmm. um and this one, the anthropomorph, the anthropomorphization—is that how you do that? <laughs> of of Buck, the dog that we follow around mm-hmm. the whole time, is not as extreme. It's your, it's a third person thing, and you still hear everything about what like Buck does and what he thinks and feels about stuff. But he's also not like a person who's standing around listening to people talk about dogs all the time like it does occasionally happen that he'll catch snippets of things but he is not kind of passed off as as understanding the he is adjacent of men yeah right yeah he is adjacent to human experience uh the 
author or the narrator of the story can understand Buck's thoughts and feelings. Right. But and so we we follow Buck through the entire story and the arc of the story is him going from sort of mostly domesticated dog to super wild wolfy dog. Ooh. Because he's following the call of the wild. He's which answering is the, the call of the, the okay. Yeah, yeah the okay. name of the thing comes into play. <laughs> um, I love what, it. I guess I love when titles spoil the book. Yeah. Right. Like <laughs> oh, in yeah, Jurassic Park, the call of the wild. Yeah, like in Jurassic Park, where it was like, well, where are they going? To Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. Spoiler. I, think, I I know we've we've had to have talked about this before, but my favorite moment in any movie or book or TV show is when they say the title. Yeah, it's pretty good. Because like 80% of the time, it is really forced and terrible. <laughs> yeah, I have to. Well, that was all over The Dark is Rising, right? We got a good goof out of that. They yeah, said that the every other page, that dark was rising everywhere. Yeah. And you can't really, stop really it, was. except you need to stop it. Yes, please rising. stop it, little little boy, little, little hero boy. boy. So what is what is Buck? He's a dog or a wolf. Where is he? He's a Saint he's a Saint Bernard half Saint Bernard half Scotch collie, I guess. Okay. Um so he's living in California somewhere in the Southlands as he refers to them mostly. And he's <laughs> he's owned by this guy Judge Miller, I think, and his life is fine. He does fine. <laughs> okay. He, he hangs out with the judge and with his kids. And everything's going okay. He's a little disdainful of the dogs that don't want to come outside at all. But it's not like he's some kind of wild, crazy dog who wants to kill everybody. So do they um, live in like a town, in a city, in it's not, or on a plantation? It's not really important. Okay. It's not super important. Okay. Um, he is very early on taken by the gardener, I think. Mm. Because the gardener has a gambling problem. And Always. And he... Yeah, and he's he needs some money, so he's going to sell this big old shaggy, strong-looking dog to somebody who's going up north and needs a bunch of dogs to pull sleds and stuff. Mm-hmm. So Buck is taken from his home. He's treated very, very badly on the way up, and he tries to break out. Like When he gets to his destination, they're going to bring him out of the box, and he is just, he's been starved and... and is really, really upset, and he's going to kill everybody when he gets out of that box. <laughs> is he articulating that? Like, he is, I am going to, ooh, those throats look tasty. Oh, man, if I, that, that guy's face looks like a juicy steak. I wish I could eat that guy's face. It's it's not, like, as goofy as that, but it is, <laughs> there is a lot of stuff like that. So, let okay. me, here we go. Um this is him being like in the process of being transported. Um, the next he knew, he was dimly aware that his tongue was hurting and that he was being jolted along in some kind of a conveyance. The hoarse shriek of a locomotive whistling a crossing told him where he was. He had traveled too often with the judge not to know the sensation of riding in a baggage car. He opened his eyes and into them came the unbridled anger of a kidnapped king. The man sprang for his throat, but Buck was too quick for him. His jaws closed on the hand, nor did they relax till his senses were choked out of him once more. And it, it's it's like that. This the incident I was talking about is a little bit further ahead, where mm-hmm. he's he reaches his destination, and there's this guy. There's a man with the red club, ooh, or a man with the red sweater who's got a club. Okay, there's a man with a red sweater, mm-hmm. and this guy is in charge of of dog breaking, 
which it's not like trying to snap a dog in half. It's like breaking a horse in that you're trying to take an animal that is maybe wild and not super interested in doing what you say to, to make them do what you say. Convince a dog that it is worth sitting, healing, begging for begging strips. Right. So the, And Buck was truly a red-eyed devil as he drew himself together for the spring, hair bristling, mouth foaming, a mag glitter in his bloodshot eyes. Straight at the man, he launched his 140 pounds of fury, surcharged with the pent passion of two days and nights. In midair, just as his jaws were about to close on the man he received a shock that checked his body and brought his teeth together with an agonizing clip and so this the man in the red sweater is like hitting him with a club ow and this is the first of buck's many lessons about how it is out in nature is he calls it the the law of the law of the club the law of the club (laughs) and it's basically whoever can beat up other things the best is gonna be in charge is that Hobbes or is that Locke? i don't know is that Calvin and Hobbes, or is that John Locke from Lost? <laughs> I think it's Hobbes. I would I not Hobbes... read. I would not read that comic. <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes and Locke from Lost. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's Hobbes who was like cavemen walk around, and whoever has the biggest rock is in charge. If you that's what the so. Leviathan's about, someone tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> Bring it. Bring it. Uh, so yeah, from there, Buck is sold to some people who just need dogs to pull a sled and from the other, from both the people who are driving that sled, who are not like bad people, a lot like Black Beauty, there are good human beings and bad human beings who Buck is exposed to during his, uh, during his run. And there's a theme of like them being conveyance people, like taxi drivers, sled drivers. Yeah, that's, that's not all of what Buck does though. I think for the most like important part of the book that's what he's doing is just pulling a sled with other dogs mm-hmm. um so the from the people who are driving the sled and the other dogs who are pulling the sled he learns more about like how to do his job and about like hierarchy within like a group of dogs do these dogs have names they do all have names one is named dave <laughs> dave the dog <laughs> which is my favorite one I like animal names that are people names generally. Just, yeah, just and not uncommon people names or like people names from other countries or something or people names that you hear on TV a lot or something. Just like really, really generic. Yeah. Like white people names. <laughs> like get a fish and name it Steven. Yeah, like, like Steven the fish. Get a rabbit. Name it Norm. Chris the cat. Jones the rabbit. Fred the weasel. Oh, that sounds like a mobster. I'm sorry. I Al- didn't Al- Albert the snake. <laughs> Albert the snake. Yes. <laughs> or I guess you I know because you call him Jake the snake, then you're doing something else. That's yeah, a, that's cool for a different reason. That's very cool for a very different reason. <laughs> um, but there's this one dog who's the leader of this this little pack named Spitz, and Spitz and Buck are getting into it all the time until finally they get in this fight and buck knows you know this fight is not going to end until one of us is super dead oh man yeah so buck and spitz fight to the death whoa and that's another lesson that buck is learning about how things there are out in nature is that sometimes you gotta kill stuff to win like sometimes you can't just finesse yourself out of a situation with some fast dog talking Who's overseeing this dog fight? Like, where is this happening? They run away. 
And oh. the people who are running the sled kind of can sense that these two dogs are going to get into it at some point. It's not like dogs are valuable, but people also seem cognizant that you're just you're going to lose some dogs. <laughs> oh, no. You're going to have some overhead. <laughs> Gotta get extra dogs. When you're running mail up in your sled up in the Yukon. So that's what their goal is? Is that they're running mail? These are not prospectors? Um, that's, I mean, the mail is coming to and from prospectors. I don't, and I don't even know that they're running mail all the time. There is definitely one sleigh when they're, where they're uh, running mail, but there are some other times where it's just like people trying to travel. Okay. Um. So yeah, he learns that you gotta kill stuff. Then he takes, he takes charge of this group of sled dogs and that is like teaching him about leadership and about how to maintain order which he is really good at even dogs that spits couldn't get to behave correctly buck gets to behave correctly because he's just a big he's a 140 150 pound dog whoa that's a big dog that's a big dog yeah that's i've only got like 30 pounds on that dog yeah <laughs> I think uh, that so, dog could take me if I was trying to lead the sled. Yeah, right. I don't have a club. <laughs> There's a... So while Buck is learning all of this stuff about like dog hierarchy, he is he is running with these pretty okay people who at least know how to take care of dogs. Um, but then they leave him, and this is forming another another pattern in Buck's life where people are just not always going to be there. Mm-hmm. And he's so so he's slowly getting more in touch with his wild side and becoming more disdainful of people. So he's smoking and wearing a leather jacket. Is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. And basically. listening to the Cure mm-hmm. and staying out late. He's starting to rebel. Um, the the way that London conveys like dog memory and dog history is interesting. It or. or the way that he conveys instincts in his anthropomorphized dog is interesting. Okay. Because I was going to be real interested in dog history as if yeah, they had he, like stories. He presents it sort of as a thing that Buck knows and remembers, even though it never happened to him. It's just stuff that is in his blood and was bred into him. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I guess I can see why the nature faker thing became controversial. Because <laughs> what if you were reading this and you thought that this was really what dogs did? But I have read accounts in other books that have treated like wolves and dogs kind of in this in this manner where where instinct and stuff is is kind of a collected shared history that everything understands even if they weren't there to live it you know it's it's stuff that goes back and back and back into their dog ancestors yeah I think it's, well, it's an interesting way to to present that sort of thing yeah because instinct in that regard if you if you're looking at it through a like darwinian breeding sense right it's like you're passing down genes that predispose you to that behavior mm-hmm. and that is as much instinct as like knowledge that's like little packs of knowledge that are strapped to your DNA that like go into the next dog. Like that's right. not exactly how it works. <laughs> but that's when well, Buck is, you know, he's learning lessons as he goes from the stuff that he kills and that he sees killed and the other things that he experiences. But it is the stuff that he's learning is just making him more attuned to what his ancestors were like, I guess. It's is stuff Buck that was in-, in there, but it wasn't it was being awakened as he goes. Is Buck an old dog, Andrew? Um, he's four years old when the book starts. 
So he's still able to learn new tricks, is what you're oh, saying. Oh, yeah. No, it's not. No, he's not. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. I would never say that. I would never put it that way. And I resent you putting these words in my mouth. I'll squeeze them in there. Ugh, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you being the Andrew this week? <laughs> One of us asked me. <laughs> So he's so yeah, dog. Yeah, he's he's in charge. In conclusion, he is, dog. He's unlocking his like hidden Pokemon potential. He's getting right, stronger he's evolving. Every day. He's learning new moves. He's forgetting uh-huh. old moves because <laughs> there's no room for those. Because you can only learn four at once, and so every time he learns a new wilderness move, he has to forget one of his domestication moves. It is. It really is just like Pokemon. Everything. So he is, once he's been leading this pack for a while, he's given away to some other people who just, who don't mean poorly, but they're working for people who just want stuff to get from point A and point to point B. And they don't really care like how it happens or like how many dogs get killed Mm -hmm. in the, in the The grand scheme. (laughs) Just throw more dogs at it. Right. Just throw more dogs on that fire. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So he's, they all, I mean, the whole team just needs to rest. They've been going for miles and miles and miles. Like, I think they've, at this point, done like 1,800 miles. Okay. Which, if you're thinking about like dogs running and pulling a sled across the tundra, like that's a lot of miles. That's many miles. Yeah. Um, but they aren't allowed to rest. They just have to be like, they're given to these new people and they have to be taken out right away. And they're being run so hard that... Like some of the dogs start to die and fall apart. And um, so they finally, they get to their destination and then they're given away again. Instead of being allowed to rest, which they very, very obviously need to be able to do. There are these three yokels who come into possession of them. I mean, it's Hal and Charles and a woman named Mercedes Mm -hmm. who is married to one of them and sister to another one of them. But I don't remember which is which it's probably not important Uh, between the three of them. (laughs) Yeah. So they don't know anything about dogs. They don't know anything about surviving in the wilderness. So they pack up their sled like super, super high to make it like really hard for these really tired dogs to pull it at all. And then they get, they buy some other dogs that are like Southland dogs and they are, they also suck. And they also (laughs) set out with 14 dogs and they're like, man, our sled is so great. I've never seen any sled set out with 14 dogs on it before. And it turns out that you do that because carrying the food that you need for 14 dogs is not possible. Oh, and, and they are really undisciplined and terrible so they're making awful time by the time they are a quarter of the way to their destination they've eaten half their food um and once and the dogs who are not accustomed to this life are eating a ton because they just are like they i guess dogs or at least in, the, in this book dogs who have been doing this for longer are used to surviving on like leaner rations I think that probably makes sense. Yeah, I think so. I'm sure that like the anthropomorphized depiction of it is a little wonky. Sure, but there's probably it, it all it all feels true, which is a really bad way to, to confirm facts. I, mean, I realize, if, but if a dog has been on the Atkins diet for long enough, like it's gonna understand that it doesn't need that much bread every day. If it was on the Catkins right? diet, then oh. it could eat his cats. <laughs> <laughs> 
no, now you're the Andrew again. Good yep. work. Okay. I'm back. Stealing the crown back. <laughs> Come with the king. You best not miss. <laughs> Heavy lies the head and whatnot. Okay, so yeah. there these ho- these dogs are gonna die. Is what you're telling me? Yeah, all the southern dogs pretty much die. Mm. And all that's left is Buck and that bone tired team from before. And okay. I think a couple of them drop off before finally they get to the camp of this dude, John Thornton and the dogs just like flop over and they just, they can't anymore because the people have been fighting and they're all hungry and it's all, they've it's all been terrible. And the, one of the two guys, I think it's Hal, but it might be Charles. Like we said, not super important starts like <laughs> whipping at the dogs and trying to get them to get up. And Buck just will not get up. He is, he is not going to get up. And Hal slash Charles is beating Buck with like a club. And then this guy, John Thornton, like smacks him and he says, no, don't be, you're not going to be mean to this dog anymore. Can't you, he's really tired and you're an idiot. <laughs> Cause they've gotten to this river ford, but, and, and, but like spring is coming. Okay. So the river is frozen over, but not that frozen over. Uh, and so Buck stays with John Thornton, who is just like, you're not going to take this dog and I would welcome you to try and get him from me. (laughs) (laughs) So these three people lash up the rest of the dogs and they like slowly and laboriously start trying to cross this river and the ice breaks and they all kind of collapse in it and everybody dies. Whoa. Which I was talking to you yesterday about um, stuff that I laughed at that was not played for laughs and but and this was mostly what i was talking about is this is a very it's a very hapless sort of womp womp kind of sequence yeah well where the book sets up all this time making you one not too attached to any non-buck dogs because it's obvious that he's the only one with top billing who is going to survive yeah sir and to like make you hate these terrible people who are just unfit for life up north and therefore deserving of death, I guess. Well, and it sounds like they are set up to fall through that ice. Like, you, oh, yeah. you can tell that that is going to happen to they them. Had all, they had all the warnings in the world from a bunch of people not to do any of the dumb stuff that they did. But they did all of it. It's kind of like how I find ice road truckers funny, even though those people are in immense danger. All the you, time. Okay, tell me what's funny about ice road truckers. It's a similar issue, right? Like, guy is driving a giant truck across a frozen lake. And he's been told not to. Well, he's been asked, he's been told to for his job. Like, okay. he needs to do it to make money. And then his truck is, like, getting stuck in slushy lake water. Mm-hmm. And he is standing outside of the cab of his truck, like, what one foot on the pedal one hand on the wheel and the rest of him outside the cab looking at ice hollering about how this is going to be like the biggest job of his life Uh, and it's it's comical it's just real goofy because it's over the top tense and it would never be on tv if that guy died so like i know (laughs) i know he's gonna make it so stop doing all your bump bump cut edits to make me think he's going in what if though that was the suspense of that show is you didn't know whether he's going to make it out or not well that would be a much that would be like a two-hour movie i would go watch and i guess I you could also do another like show within a show called 
ice road truckers filmers about the people who have all this camera equipment out on this ice with these with these trucker boys yeah how did they get out there what are they doing at this if you made that show now they just use drones it'd be way safer yeah well i also think that you could just use like don't things fly now like couldn't you just fly stuff instead of driving a truck across ice i don't think you can take like a crane into the woods by flying it i don't know man i don't know all I'm saying is that ice, like in 20 years, we aren't even going to have any ice anymore. So we'd better start thinking about ways to get around it. Okay, cool. Yeah. Probably boats, I think. Yeah, the, the, the trucks <laughs> of the sea, they're called. <laughs> so once Buck settles up with, with John Thornton, right? Yeah, what, John what, Thornton. Is that where Buck just kind of spends the rest of his days? or Buck, not, not really, but it is where he spends most of the rest of the book. So John Thornton's a good guy. And he's got these two other dogs. And normally Buck would, you know, other dogs make him wear it at this point. And he's always got to like bristle and be all in charge of everything because that's just the life that he knows. Well, everyone's um, coming for him. Yeah. You come John at Thornton, the throne. Well, so for starters, like he's so weak that he can't do that. And so he lets these other dogs in Mm. into his heart. Mm. And he also lets John Thornton into his heart for saving him. And so he this is his first time really experiencing love. Like even back before he got kidnapped, he liked and like sort of respected the people who he was with. But it wasn't a love thing like he feels for for. Um, John Thornton and these other dogs. Okay. And so he will do anything for John Thornton. He loves John Thornton and John Thornton loves him right back. So there, there's some sequences where John Thornton is showing affection for a buck by like grabbing him and tussling him a little bit and like swearing at him. Yeah. Um, which I think is really, that's, that's really what animal ownership is about is like <laughs> petting your kitty and calling him like a stupid little idiot. Cause he is, he's a little idiot. Do you are there any examples of swears in the book, or does he just say that he's swearing? At no, him? it just says he's like cursing at him gently or whatever. Um, okay, let me see if I can find it. I kind of wanted to know if it was like old timey curses, or if we were in like a Deadwood scenario where he was like, just dropping f bombs, like God's there. wounds. <laughs> um, and Buck also does this thing where he like bites John Thornton's hand as hard as he can without breaking the skin. Which is interpreted by John Thornton as a sign of love, which it is. It's the dog equivalent um, of cursing. Yeah. Thornton fell on his knees beside Buck. Head was against head and he was shaking him back and forth. Those who hurried up and heard him cursing Buck. Wait, what? Those who hurried up heard him cursing Buck and he cursed him long and fervently and softly and lovingly. <laughs> I, I love you so much, you beep. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, that so is he, pet ownership over there. You curse at your cat all the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, of course I do. I he think you, thinks, do you hate your cat? Are his name. No, I don't hate my cat. I just like, <laughs> you know how, well, I don't know. You know how you just live with somebody for a long time and you find out all their little foibles and stuff <laughs> and you get like, you can get like lovingly annoyed about it. Like, oh, looks like. Looks like somebody left crackers out again. Oh, I love him so much. Yeah, sure. They'll never get better at that, but I love them anyway. I love them. It's just it just means that they're here, and that's one of the things I love about them. Blah blah blah. A, pet ownership is like that, except the stuff can't understand you, and so you don't need to like limit 
the words that you use against okay. them. Okay. Okay. Like if you started swearing at Laura, like lovingly, but also just swearing at her, probably she wouldn't like it that much. She could swear about. She could swear at me for a bunch of the stuff that I do. That's dumb. Yeah. I leave cabinets open left and right. How like, do you... I will just walk away from an opening cabinet or drawer. I don't understand how people do that because closing a cabinet or drawer is like the easiest thing in the whole world. It's like even easier than opening it most of the time. Most of the time, you're right. Sometimes... And it's also it also makes your house look so much tidier because you put you know why you put all that stuff in your cupboard or in your drawers is because you don't want it just out on the floor somewhere. Yeah, I don't know, man. Come on. For me, drawers are just like movable shelves. Why why close it up? Just roll it around. Yeah. Sometimes Good. I leave them Good half job. open because I'm just lazy. Like I'll close it a little that bit and then like walk more away. more work than just regular closing it. Oh, my God. How does anybody live with you? I don't know. <laughs> so Buck and John Thornton are best of, best of buds. Okay. And they like there's this sequence where Buck like pulls this thousand pound sled on a bet because John Thornton says he could. And so he wins like a bunch of gold because Buck, of course, loves him so much that he easily pulls the sled for the required distance. Um, And then with that money, they go a prospect then. And once they're up in camp, there isn't a ton for Buck to do. Like he's definitely not being worked as hard as he was. He's more or less just companion to John Thornton. And so he starts, he takes to like running out from the camp and like spending some days in the wilderness. And this is where he's getting like even more wild. So at this point, yeah, he, he can't dig for gold. This is when he is literally hearing the call of the wild. Okay. (laughs) Because there's like a wolf out there that's howling and they make like, they make like buds. Um, so Buck, but Buck always comes back because of John Thornton and John yeah. Thornton is like the only thing that can keep him tied to being tame. Okay. Anymore. Um, so he's, so Buck is out in the wilderness for a while and then he comes back and he realizes something's wrong because he's like, he's baiting a moose for like three or four days just because he wants to see what it's like to kill a moose. <laughs> for a while, he's just killing stuff. Not, I mean, not because he does eat it. It's not just. It's not killing for no reason, but he is taking a lot of pleasure in the hunt and the kill. Sure. In ways that might make vegetarians or something uncomfortable. And so this this made up tribe of, of I guess they'd be Native Canadians, not Native Americans. Would they still be Native Americans? Is the America in reference to the United States of America or to North America? In Dawson City? Well, I mean, they aren't in Dawson City, but just like... They would you call them Native Canadians? I I've probably never heard that. W- no. I would pro I would call them Native Americans or First People. Okay, and we have plenty of Canadian listeners, so correct us, please. Um. Anyway, he comes up against this this tribe who uh, who London made up basically, and they have like murdered and slaughtered everybody, John Thornton included. So Buck goes nuts. He goes Buck wild. And he kills a bunch of people. He kills a bunch of people. And then once he's done doing that, he like he follows John Thornton's scent to a like a little body of water that it does not leave from. Mm. So poor John Thornton met his end. Um, And so now Buck's last link to mankind, I guess, has been severed. And he's out in the wilderness and he runs into this pack of wolves. And of course, he fights them and kills a bunch of them. He's just the to best. just to prove that he's dominant because like they surround him and then yeah, that, sure. that wolf that he made friends with earlier 
is in that pack and then he becomes like the leader of the pack and it's said in the days the leader of the pack the days and years after there are wolves that have some non-wolfish qualities that look just a little a little doggish and also buck is like leading them around and there's a whole valley that this tribe of people won't go into anymore because there's like a demon wolf that scours it all the time and then um once a once a year in like spring or summer buck comes back and howls because he's sad about john thornton but other than that he's just a wild dog now the end the implication being that he had a sex with a bunch of wolves oh yeah oh yeah in conclusion dogs thank you (laughs) okay sounds like you had a good time with it though right it's pretty straightforward as a as far as like the writing goes and the storytelling yeah, goes. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really speedy read and the language is like it's economical and like we talked about with um the how he handles instinct and stuff. There are some cool ideas about how he's presenting the world from an animal's point of view. Um, okay. And it's it and it's if anything it's a little bit more interesting than the way Black Beauty does it because Black Beauty is just so thoroughly domesticated and so what Black Beauty is concerned about mostly is humans relative to horses. Sure, sure. Um, and and Call of the Wild is more just about here's this dog. Here's what it, he, have you ever wondered what a dog thinks? It's like the first Pixar movie, <laughs> dogs but with feelings. Yeah. And and it's it seems to be about what is the natural state of this dog, not like yeah. what are we doing wrong to this dog, what are the systems in place that keep this dog from being a dog. Sure, I mean, if anything, Buck starts to learn the rules of nature from from humans, like the law of the club and all that stuff. Yeah, and it's, yeah. I'm not sure if there's supposed to be a value judgment about humanity in here. Um, at the end, when Buck is killing the people, he realizes to himself, you know, these these people go down so much easier than a lot of animals. Okay. But except when they have like clubs and, and spears and stuff. So it's obviously like there. if you attack a human without tools, then he's not going to be able to defend himself very well. Hmm. Okay. Um, just so I don't, I don't. Yeah. Again, I'm not sure if we're supposed to read anything about like the horrors of treating a dog badly or like domestication or anything even if if anything it works humans into nature in sort of an interesting way because we are we we do teach buck stuff buck does learn stuff from killing us i guess he learns what humans place in society is which is at the top if they have a stick and and toward the bottom if they don't (laughs) we would all do well to remember that i think Mm -hmm. well and this seems it he later in his life london wrote a bit more with an eye towards uh animal activism sure you know he wrote about animal cruelty in circus animals um and they created the jack london club in 1918 Mm -hmm. uh which actually some of their members created a cessation of trained animal acts in Barnum and Bailey in 1925. So I, he seems to have been predisposed to uh, kind of empathy for the natural state of an animal. Sure. And this is, it's not, he wrote a bunch of short stories before this. Um, I think as, as far as I can tell, his 
earliest is from 1894 and this is in 1903. So it's, it is possible, I guess, that maybe he just hadn't fully fleshed out those beliefs at the time he was writing this. Sure, sure. He was just trying to write a novel about the wilderness with the stuff that he'd picked up when he was up in the, you know, up in the Yukon doing the whole gold rush game. Mm -hmm. Well, one Um, of the things we didn't talk about is that this was serialized over the course of a summer in i be, i want to say the chronicle no um, the saturday evening post excuse yeah me. i know the there's a story called, that was just called diablo dash a dog that was about like a mean <laughs> dog that was published in cosmo which i guess i must have known this already but it was a much much different magazine like a hundred years ago than i think they now. all like were they, yeah they published a lot of like fiction and stuff it was like a family magazine and not about like 10 ways to rip your bodice or whatever you have written about oh back God. in the day. <laughs> yeah. That's what it would have been about. Yeah. Uh, no. And, and that's, it seems to have been how he kind of built his little media empire was churning out all sorts of stories like this. Yeah. Um, and this was collected as a novel. Did it feel like it was written episodically at all? Where there are there natural breaks? I mean, kind in the of, but but only insofar as like any chapter book feels that way. It definitely didn't. It di- the only time I really notice that kind of serialization is when it's like a Dickens style thing, where it's pretty obvious that he's being paid by the word and he's milking it for all it's worth. Okay, <laughs> okay. This just seems like a a book that happened to have been published that way originally, but it hangs together pretty well, and the. You know the chapters all segue pretty pretty naturally, like one into the next. And every chapter does have like its own little narrative arc and its own little thing that it teaches Buck. Um, and its own, it even a lot of them even deal with their own little chunks of what it is like to be a prospector or what it's like to just live up there. Um, cool, but yeah, no, it's it it. If I if if you hadn't researched that stuff, then no, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have picked it out as being something that was published in many installments over the course of a couple months. Okay. But does this make does this book make you any more or less of a dog person? Um, about the same. I'm I'm not really I've never been too much of a dog person. I like I'm a cat person. That's I think that's mostly from my parents or at least for my dad who brought mm. a cat home instead of a dog. And I, I don't know if that always determines oh, what man. kind of person you are, but I think it probably has a lot to do with it. What would have happened if he had brought home a dog? I don't know. Everything be different. Inception. Wait. What? <laughs> yeah. that's. <laughs> I don't know. Why that doesn't make any sense to me. It makes me laugh a lot. Yeah. Okay. Great. Is there anything else? We good. I think we're good. I want to thank Lucas, uh, who's one of our Patreon supporters and, and dedicated listeners who recommended this book. Um, and you can recommend books to us through social media. We'll talk about how you get them to the top of the pile. But if you go to twitter.com slash overduepod or facebook.com slash overduepod, you can share recommendations. You can also share your favorite old-timey dog names. I just looked up a couple uh, from 19th century. Old Puss, Puss. Spider, Trick Track, White Prince, trick Young track. Prince. Yeah, Trick Track's pretty good. I also like Meteor or Modesty. Those are all great. <laughs> uh, I want to give a shout out to a bunch of Twitter handles and Facebook names. Kate, Alicia, Melissa, Ellen, Lisa, Danny, Mr. J, Bailey, Lucas, Catherine, Alyssa, J Deep, Lynn, 
Ingsoc, Taylor, Christina, Rachel, uh, Bookmans in Tucson, Elizabeth, Amanda, Graham, Angela, Michael, Robin, Ken, and Ray. They all reached out to us on social media this week. Thank you so much. You can also email into overduepod at gmail.com. Andrew, where should they go if they want to find out more about the show? They can go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. We've got links to iTunes, RSS, Stitcher, and Google Play, which you can use to subscribe to the show. Um, if you subscribe in iTunes, do rate and review us. Um, that helps us rise in the rankings, makes us feel better about ourselves. And if you subscribe in Stitcher, um, let us know because I, I, we're thinking about maybe possibly shutting that down because we don't have full control over it. And we've had a lot of people like report problems with either the feed's not refreshing fast enough or... Um, or it's just it's downloading the wrong thing or just like as as a, and I think as our back catalog's gotten bigger it's had more problems with with it so um let us know if if you would have a huge problem with us doing that we don't want to put anyone out but likewise we don't love having this little corner of our audience who's listening to a version of the show that we don't really have that much control over Craig would you say that's accurate I would say that that's accurate like there are plenty of other uh third-party services and and that's not necessarily uh we're not trying to put stitcher on blast it's just more that we don't have as you're saying control over the feed in the same way that we do at say even spreaker who hosts all of our stuff yeah um yeah if you go to our website you can also find uh yeah like craig said spreaker our podcast host headgum our podcast network amazon links to the books that we have read and we're going to read which you can click and buy if you want to support us um and a link to our patreon project which is another way to support us in kind of an ongoing fashion and that's, uh, like Craig said, that is why we read uh, Call of the Wild. It's why I'm working on 1Q84 right now. And Craig, are you working on another patron book right at Right the now I'm working on our May bonus episode, which I right. hope will be Guilt by Association by Marsha Clark. I went on a mm-hmm. huge O.J. Simpson trial kick with that FX show, and you found out that she was writing fiction. So I'm doing a deep dive on that right now. Cool. And then I think for our June bonus episode, we had some people on our Goodreads mm. page suggest like a listener write-in episode. And I know we do do like mailbag stuff sometimes, but if you guys have a question for us that's not tied to any particular book or anything that you want to know, um, we'll be putting out a call for those. Or you can just shoot us an email or a tweet or whatever. And uh, maybe we can we can talk about that for a bit. Yeah. It, I love the emails that we get, but sometimes it's hard to squeeze them into an episode about another book. Mm-hmm. Like one of the hardest things about the show is going back and talking about old episodes without it being directly related to the book we've read each week. Right. So yeah. this is kind of, I'm really excited to test this idea. If you want to ha- pick our brains about previous episodes or there are, there are actually books that we have read that we haven't gotten to because both of us have read them. Mm-hmm. So chances are you might have a question about something like that. Uh, or just it can be Goof Town. Who yeah. knows? Welcome to Goof Town. Welcome Population to Population You. Population You. All right, everybody. We will see you next week. And until then, try to be happy. That was a headgum podcast.
But we should start using we should start using that phrase. I want is anyone using that one for anything? Don't take our word for it. Yeah, don't take our word for it. The more you know. Yeah. Read a book. <laughs> I'm just a bill sitting on Capitol Hill. I don't know the rest of that song. This is probably not a run that needs to stay in the final cut of the podcast. Okay, great. 